right, all right. Welcome back to another week, another episode of Little More Good. My name is Zach. I'm here with my friend. Yo, it's Diener. We're here sitting around, <laughs> pondering, you know. All the, the mysteries. The mysteries of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this week's episode is with one of the great explorers of our time. It's true. Pete McBride. Uh, Pete McBride has spent two decades studying the world with a camera, a self-taught photographer, filmmaker, writer, and public speaker. He has traveled on assignment to over 75 countries for the National Geographic Society. He's, he's seen the world in ways that many can only imagine. I've heard after a decade documenting remote expeditions from Everest to Antarctica, um, he's really observed cultures, communities, places, you know, around the world, 75 countries. Um, but in recent years, he's, he's focused his camera closer to home on a subject closer to his heart, his backyard river, the Colorado River. Four years and 1,500 river miles later, McBride produced an acclaimed book, three award-winning documentaries, and co-hosted a P- PBS TV program. Um, his work is inspiring in so many ways. Yeah. One, visually, you know, I think in seeing travel photography, travel journalism, as skilled as Pete's, it invites you to see the world. It allows you to step out of your routine, your comfort to imagine possibilities beyond the ones that you know or understand in your day to day. And I think when you see these things, it invites you to start your own explorations and and have your own curiosities and can plant seeds to, to maybe plan a trip. And, you know, you plan that trip and all of a sudden, you have empathy and understanding for for cultures and curiosities for for people that perhaps you othered or or didn't see in the past and mm-hmm. i think the the snowball effect that can start with a photograph is immensely good um and pete is is really i mean there's not many photojournalists photographers that have you know accomplished the work that that pete has um, very interested and curious about the work that he's doing in the states right now with rivers. There's, you know, some of the the biggest rivers in the states are are literally dying, mm-hmm. and those those rivers are the life force of of a nation in many ways, of a people, of a community. You know, fresh water to drink, water for your showers. You know, there is no there is no life without water, and and we don't have responsible regenerative relationships and and some way the only way to believe it is to see it and uh pete's making that possible through his his films and in his books so he's got three three books um probably more actually three that uh i've gone through seeing silence which is my my favorite one the beauty of the world's most quiet places the grand canyon between river and rim um, he traveled by foot the whole Grand Canyon. Um, there's a, a documentary about it on, on Disney as well, which is a 10 out of 10. Uh, I think it's National Geographic, but it's on Disney+. Plus. The Colorado River flowing through conflict. And um, he's got TED Talks. Amazing, amazing guy. What do you think, Dean? Yeah, it was great to catch up with him. It was kind of like... Uh 
hearing hearing the story behind his craft, like how he wants to capture these things and kind of be a witness to them. Um, we go into the language of like activism and, and seeing what he does as kind of activism, but he was was really humble about it and just said, no, like this is kind of his his ability. This is what he creates in the world. And he wants to share images that tell stories about things and places and people that are important to him. Um, yeah, and so it's kind of like hearing his adventure stories, but hearing his passions um, how he cares for the world and how he reveals that through his photography was really cool. It was uh, it was great to catch up with him, um, and to yeah to have him to have him on the podcast. It made me also appreciate the natural beauty of the place where we live here in Vancouver. Like even on the podcast, we were kind of talking about how lucky we are with with the proximity to oceans and rivers and and lakes and mountains and forests all around us. And you know, it did make me appreciative again. Uh, even by you know speaking with him and looking at his work of of kind of his backyard, talking about the Colorado River, and us being right here on the Fraser River, like it was, it reminded me of uh, the beauty uh, of this place and also the importance and like the sacred history. and And podcasts kind of exist outside of time and place, but I think it's also important to remember and to acknowledge like that we're recording this podcast on unceded ancestral territory of like Musqueam people, the Tsleil-Waututh Nations, Hunkaminam language speaking group, like, you know, this area where we are was kind of a a shared uh, backyard for many people, right? So as Pete was telling the story about what what matters to him in the Colorado River, you know, we are in a very similar situation where we have these these shared people groups, this history, and, um, you know, we we sit here on this land that is is not ours, and we want to steward it well and care for it well, and all, all of what, you know, Pete's work does is inspires people to have moments like that where you can sit and go, man, like where I live is so special and who, who got to see it as special first and you know, how has it evolved and changed and changed hands over time and how has that been harmful or helpful or whatever. And so, yeah, our, our little podcast here comes from, comes from the traditional unceded land of the Musqueam people. So we're grateful that we get to be here on this, on this beautiful land. Every day is a privilege here. Yeah. Um, before we kind of roll into this conversation, uh, just kind of highlighting Pete and his work, um, his documentary that you can see on on Disney Plus, National Geographic, Into the Canyon, Emmy nominated. It also won the grand prize at the Vancouver International Mountain Film Fest, and um, also the the Mountain Image Award, uh, the Banff Mountain Book Festival, and. Um, best feature at the Banff Mountain Film Fest along with a million other accolades but it's got some some shiny special awards here on this this land that you just acknowledge so beautifully Dean um all right well before we pass things on to Pete we got a couple sponsors for this week's episode yes we're uh really excited to share that we have a new sponsor of our show today Caldera Lab say goodbye to the generic face wash on your counter because Caldera Lab are here to save the day when it comes to your skin. Backed by a leading clinical trial where nine out of 10 men experienced healthier and visibly improved skin, Caldera Lab has the tools to unlock your best first impression and confidence. Today, we have an exclusive offer for our audience so you can try for yourself why so many men trust Caldera Lab for their skincare needs. Use our code MOREGOOD at calderalab.com for 20% off their best products. And their products are great. 
amazing yeah like we've been using them for for a little bit now and uh i would say like a noticeable difference very quickly in not only how like my skin feels but how it looks you're glowing dean you're glowing. <laughs> i know this is audio only but dean <laughs> just looks great um i gotta be honest like i've i've never been a skincare guy right i just you know water for the last 20 years i've just used water and um I think the timing is perfect because, you know, I don't know if I was necessarily like looking at myself in the mirror and really looking, but somebody, one of our, our staff, uh, one of our, our team members at the juice truck came up to me and they're like, man, you're looking really old these days. And I was like, I am? Like, and I was like, see myself as like very youthful. I work out a lot, you know, I've got lots of energy. And then I looked in the mirror and I was like, damn, where did all those wrinkles come from? I never saw them. And now when I look at the mirror... I see all these wrinkles. So, um, and wrinkles are fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with, with aging and wrinkles. They're my, they're my wisdom lines or my stress lines or somewhere in between. Yeah. But I never knew the joy in skincare. And Caldera Lab um, came along and um, we're so grateful for this partnership. I didn't know that um, skincare could feel so great. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a meditation. It's a little bit of, of me time. I look forward to, you know, using their products, the clean slate where I start the day, a balancing cleanser that uses gentle plant-based cleansing. I love the ingredients. You know, we say you are what you eat, but yeah. you also are what you put on your skin. Like, yeah. look at those ingredients, you know? Like, I look at the ingredients in Caldera and Lab, and I'm like, this could be a meal. You know, it's all ingredients that I know, understand, mm -hmm. are plant-based. There's no weird words or chemicals that, like, kind of give me the heejibijis and scare me off. Um, so I've really been loving the, the routine of, of, you know, using the clean slate, the, the base layer, putting that nutrient-dense fortifying moisturizer on that hydrates my skin, uh, leaves me with, like, a nice kind of matte finish to kind of feel... A little bit more like myself, you know, I'm like celebrating myself, these mm -hmm. like mini victories of putting it on and like, um, yes, yes, I am, you know, like I am, yeah. I am youthful, <laughs> yeah. I'm energized, I'm feeling good. So it's a little way to celebrate myself and feel good. And uh, I didn't know that uh, a moisturizer and a face wash could feel so great on my on my face, on my body. And uh, I'm here for it. I mean, I feel like it's 2023, guys if you're not taking care of your skin, like you're not doing it right. You know, we have all of these amazing innovations and things that we bring into our life. And this, uh, this is a great one. Like you said, you know, uh, really, really engineered through pharmaceutical science, uh, that can give us nature's purest and most potent ingredients delivered right into your face. It's good stuff. Um, I love it. I love the smell of it. I love the ritual of it. I love how it makes me feel. I love how it makes my skin feel. Um, gentlemen, you're going to want to get on this one. So again, uh, very graciously, we get to give you 20% off with Oof. our code MOREGOOD. So visit calderalab.com and get 20% off. That's 20% off at calderalab.com by using MOREGOOD as your code. Unlock your youthful glow and be ready for this summer with Caldera Lab. This episode is also brought to you by Athletic Greens, AG1. Zach and I have been on the AG1 game for a while. You know that our morning ritual is the wake and shake. We take one scoop of the AG1 
drop it into some nice fresh water, give it a shake and drink it down. It's beautiful. The weather has been turning. The sunsets are beautiful here. There's been a string of them this month and I just love taking that AG1, getting out into the sunshine in the morning, standing barefoot on the ground like some sort of, you know, grounding hippie or whatever. But I just, it feels so good. It's part of my routine and I know that uh, it, the AG1 is making me healthy and whole from the inside out. 75 high quality ingredients, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens. I mean, there's so much stuff in there that is just good for me that I drink it. And even if it's not a beautiful sunny day, when I have my AG1, I feel radiant from the inside out. You're shining. You're shining, my friend. Yeah, it promotes gut health, supports immunity, boosts energy, helps recovery, you know, that foundation for daily health, it starts with those those habits at the beginning of the day. And if you can start your day right, you know, you, you're setting yourself up with your best possibility of having a good day. So uh, AG1 for me is is a health practice, but it's also it's a practice in, in starting my day in the way in which I want to start. So get that AG1, get the athletic greens into your daily habit. Wake and shake just like Dean and I. Join, join the AG1 revolution and build that foundation of daily health for yourself. That's right. How'd you get the AG1, Dean? Ooh, go to athleticgreens.com slash more good. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash more good. When you sign up, you will get five free travel packs. You're also going to get a year's supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, which is incredible. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash more good to sign up. Get your AG1 today. Start your routine. Start your day off right feel good from the inside out take care of that body all right ag1 let's go friends on to this week's episode all right all right welcome back to another week of a little more good we are so excited for this conversation uh we're sitting across the continents uh with a a creator that we greatly admire uh pete mcbride welcome welcome to the podcast pete thanks for having me guys appreciate it yeah, we're so excited to kind of dive into your journey. We've, you know, watched your movies and, and your TED Talks, and we've got your beautiful book here. Um, as as two people that have been inspired by travel in the past and, and the beauty of, of, you know, different cultures and different climates and, and different communities, uh, your book speaks to speaks to my soul, and I'm, I'm just excited to dive into your adventures and, and how it all began. Right on. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, if people are unfamiliar with you, uh, we highly recommend that you check Pete's work out. You can find his website uh, at PeteMcBride.com. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me uh, about you was, you know, I saw your Instagram and you have like a great curated feed there as well, which brought me to your website. And as we were looking, uh, stunning images, amazing storytelling. But one thing that was really interesting is that you're kind of self-taught at a lot of things. And in today's world of, you know, degrees and higher education and any number of specifications online and things we can take, it's really, I think it's really fascinating and kind of, kind of cool and maybe unique part of your story where you discover these things on your own. Um, could you walk us through or take us back to maybe how, how did you discover that you had this passion, this interest in, in photography and capturing the world? Was it from when you were a kid? Was there a catalyst moment? What what brought you to create the work that you're creating in the world today? Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a good question, and I uh, it's actually I'm I'm we're doing this for those that are are listening. We're doing this on a Zoom, so um, 
there may be a chance to see the backdrop, but behind me is a camera and it's an, actually, it's a Super 8 video camera that my father used to carry around uh, all the time. And I never really thought about photography, but I guess I kind of watched my dad filming us and as kids a lot and uh, probably planted a seed somewhere. And then uh, I never actually picked up a camera with any professional intent until I was 23 years old. 24 and I was working as a writer at a newspaper natural resource paper um, called high country news still in existence today and I photographed um, a story about um, ranching and branding and they seemed to like my pictures more than like my words at the time so I was like huh maybe 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 this photography game is uh, easier than writing and um, I think it just made me realize you could tell you could tell a story visually as much as you could with the, the, the written word and that set off on a long path that kind of I worked as a bunch of different jobs early on and um, beauty about photography is you you know when you make a mistake you know when it's out of focus you know when it's overexposed and you're like well I did that wrong or, or I did that wrong and that's actually a really cool effect sometimes your mistakes teach you mm. so if you're patient and you are willing to be a little bit, um, I don't know, critical of your own stuff and willing to learn um, and look at other people's work. Um, It's a great, it's a, that's the amazing thing about photography. Of course, everyone's turned into photographers today, but they're doing it with their phones, which they have very little control of. Mm. And so uh, um, I think it's changed to a degree, but, Mm. yeah, I think um, that's how it started, and and uh, and I'm still learning. It's it's an ongoing path. Uh, anything in the creative arts world, and um, I think trying to redefine yourself and and re-inspire yourself with with creativity is really important. Uh, so I started as a writer. I became a photographer. I've since done both writing and photography. Now I do filmmaking. Now I try to weave it all into public speaking, which is like a kind of a performance entertainment piece with storytelling. And I think the foundation, the most important foundation of it all at the end of the day, which is sometimes forgotten with social media is storytelling. Mm. So with your photography, I want to get into your, your travels and your storytelling and, and some of the amazing things that you've, uh, witnessed and experienced over over your your time but i thought maybe we could just talk a little bit about the practice um of photography for a few minutes do you find uh that when you have your camera not your cell phone or your iphone but your your physical camera do you do you find that it gives you permission to to see the world in a different way than you do without your camera Um, or has it... I actually would say yes. Yeah. I would say yes. I I will often say that people ask me what's the best camera, you know, and you know, biggest, most megapixels, blah blah blah. But and I'll always answer that the best camera is the one in your hand. Yes. Um. And as if that happens to be an iPhone and you're using it as a way to be creative and document in a way, then then I will look, but. More often than not, the, the the phone camera is a snapshot 
memory think gatherer um, kind of notebook and the bigger camera is also a note I will treat it like a notebook but I will definitely pay much more attention plus I have much more control do I want this to have a bigger depth of field do I want to have a slow shutter speed and blur the action do I want to freeze the action do I want to overexpose in a way and um, do I want to take a you know a, a three minute exposure things like that um, so I it just lends yourself to a more kind of right hand, right brained kind of creative mindset a little bit for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that but you... it's good? It's a good question because I. Yeah, I guess just to, to keep. It's how the tool. Yes, yes, to keep kind of going on that craft. On do Do you find that um, through this practice for so many years? even when you don't have your camera that you see the world differently now, like see things in frames or see details that, um, you know, you might not have noticed before. Like does your own lens for the world, has it evolved through this practice? Uh, yes. I, I think I sometimes, um, I look at things as if I'm with a photographer. I maybe too much. Yeah. Sometimes sure. I wish I could turn that part of my brain <laughs> off. Just be like, be in the moment and enjoy it. And uh, but I'll be like, oh my god, look at that light, or look, I <laughs> look at that moment. Um. So I definitely see the world a lot, and I have for a long time, some twenty some years, kind of through that photographic eye. I I get fatigued too. I have to put the camera down, and just make sure that I'm in the moment and being present. And um, I think that's important for for other photographers to be aware of. Mm-hmm. It's also really important to if if I'm doing a travel story and I'm meeting people in a foreign land, a foreign culture, that I that I lead with humanity and first, and the photography comes second. So I might spend a couple of days with if I'm with an indigenous travel community in the Grand Canyon, or if I'm somewhere in South America, I'll just wait until I have permission and the trust to take pictures. Mm. And maybe that has changed with the advent of social media and everyone's you know, trying to document everything, but I still think it's a really respectful way to go about, about the world. Yeah. I, I really love what you said about the idea of being in the moment and how you know your practice is to when appropriate like not use the camera but build that relationship create a create a context where you can capture images and and uh it's interesting because in today's world we all have thousands and thousands of pictures in our camera roll that we may never look at again but in some moment we thought oh this is important i need to document this and of course social media is all about just the sharing of the mundane and you know the profound that it can kind of all become just noise and it's interesting how photography, I think, at first was like um, uh, really like a, an homage to the present because there was something happening in this moment and a photographer with skill, you know, and good timing would capture what was happening in the present moment with reverence for the present moment. And I think now it's kind of like uh, there's no reverence. It's just like, well, let's just capture this and, and post it because content or whatever 
And how do you maybe walk the line between the machine of creating content and being seen and having your work stand out and still having like reverence for that present moment that you're documenting and, and being sure to, of course, get the get the shot, but be in that moment still, whatever it is, a, a sunset, um, an elephant, uh, a unique person that you've encountered in, in some far off part of our globe. How do you still have that 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 reverence for the present? Uh, I, it's, it's, a, it's another great question because I think social media to a degree, on one hand, it's great. It gives voice, uh, increased voice to, to many, particularly photographers that did. Um, but it's also created this kind of feed the, the beast, feed the monster where we're just being trained by the you know, the algorithm that we have to keep producing. And I'm, I fight that a lot. I, um, uh, it creates, like you said, it creates a really noisy kind of world, a noisy, um, work world, a noisy kind of living world. And so I frankly, nothing I love more than going out and being off the internet being away from my phone and just to go take pictures just to let have the camera become my my passport to like explore and be curious and study um and if nothing else it, at the end of the day even if i don't have a great image it's like a meditation on on the world around me whether that's nature whether i'm in an urban environment more more often than not i i i'm kind of becoming more um more interested in the the diminished um wilderness areas that we have on the planet these wild places that seem to be getting a little bit overrun mm -hmm. um and those are those are really hard to get beautiful images in because there's there's a lot of a lot of imagery in the world and so i of course it comes back to this concept of story too like if i am really doing something professionally what is the story and and when i'm doing that i'm really <laughs> thinking about it on all different levels, the kind of the big picture, the small picture, the details. Uh, and uh, so it's, do I still have reverence for, for the, the craft, I guess is the question. And um, I do very much, but I, I, um, I would say that I have as much reverence for the process now as much as anything just making space and time to do it and do it well and getting pushing the noise of like i need to feed this or post this out of my head because mm. it you know we live in a wild time i mean there was just a photo competition that was won by a photograph made by ai they didn't disclose it before the competition after they disclosed after to make a point ai is going to be able to make any picture you want look beautiful and so is photography on the you know way out to a degree no but the, the landscape of it is changing constantly and if anything i've learned in this industry it's you have to adapt and find a way for to um inspire yourself before you can inspire others yeah hmm I love that. This is the second time you've kind of come back to that idea of like to, to be re-inspired. And yeah, it is so interesting, the world we live in with AI and all of the 
things that it can do and how well it can do them. But uh, I was I was speaking with a friend, you know, just uh, whatever early or late last year when the whole chat GBT thing was coming out and. He's like, watch, you know, there's going to be all of these articles written and blogs written. And then we're going to start seeing like, uh, you know, you can go to the grocery store. Zach and I are both vegan, so we don't eat a lot of meat. But you can go to the grocery store and you can see, oh, this is like grass fed beef. He's like, you know how you can get grass fed beef now? It's going to be like, this is like a, a human generated article or human generated images, right? <laughs> it's just wild, but... I think there's something that I want to I want to dive into in, in kind of what you were saying there, and it ties into this idea of like computers and AI can create beautiful images, um, but perhaps the process behind it is it, well, not perhaps the process behind it is not the same as the person who's gone out there with intention and connection and you know all of the time that is spent going into that one image. Um, what is like the spiritual practice or maybe the soul of photography? Like, uh, like, a you know, there's meditation, Zen in the art of, uh, you know, motorcycle maintenance, Zen in the art of, of photography or, or of videography as a practice. How do you find maybe meditation or spirituality in the mix of, of lenses and depth of field and F-stop and all of that stuff? <laughs> uh, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's tricky. Uh, it, it's like anything. It's like if whether you're, whether I'm doing photography, I like playing music. It, um, I like doing a lot of, I grew up as in being an athlete too. You have to, you have to practice. Um, oftentimes I'm, my best images come at the, you know, the end of the day when I've been shooting all day, when um, I'm kind of like, becoming more connected with the camera. It sounds a little cheesy, but uh, I kind of have to, you know, refresh myself on where I am, what am I doing? And it's gets more complicated because oftentimes I'm switching back and forth between video and stills because I do a lot of filmmaking too. But um, when I get really like um, slow down, slow time down and it really start to look and, and not be and be patient. Um, I think that's, that's kind of the Zen. That's the meditative part that I look for. Just like meditation itself, it's like clearing your mind of the noise of the clutter that's distracting. And so um, with photography, the most beautiful part of it and the most challenging part of it is that it slows you down and you have to be patient. But um, if you're, you have to kind of use the camera as an, ex as an excuse to be that way. So it forces you to sit and look and wait. And and then of course you do the things like the checklists that you kind of want to hit off. And then once I sometimes do that, if I'm on an assignment for a big publication or a client, I will do it what I think they want to see. And then I start doing what, what speaks to me. And that's the, that's the most fun space. And that usually comes with a lot of time and patience in the field. Mm. And I, I, it makes me concerned slightly that um, not only is everybody want things done yesterday or right this second, because we have, you know, the technological advances to do that, but we live in an interesting time too, where publications don't send journalists out in the field for a long time. 
And National Geographic used to send us on three-month expeditions, and now it's then I went to two, and then one, and now you're lucky if you get two weeks. And um, nothing against them; they're just doing what the you know the industries are doing, and we all expect content to be amazing and free. Yet, um, we don't expect anyone to go out into the field and really connect with other humans or spend the time needed to get a new wildlife angle or tell a story with all angles and facets. And that's, I think, that's sad. It's a really important element of, of um, not just journalism, but really humanity at a certain level. Yeah, I mean, just looking at your book, Seeing Silence, one can pick this up and really experience cultures from around the world. And the value to that, like someone, I could pick this up and look at a picture and it could inspire me to go to Nepal or, or somewhere around the world that could change my life, you know? So like without people like yourself inviting us to see other parts of the world um, through lenses that we might not consider, I think it minimizes human possibility. So I, I like I think there's a great reverence to to journalism and photography in in the way that you created and and photography's uh photographers in the share community with you i think like if ai were to replace this it's kind of replacing the soul of how we see the world in a way you know yeah i i agree i think uh uh i went to a talk incidentally on ai last night by one of the lead leads um engineers and somebody asked a question about misinformation afterwards and the man who's you know top 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 level at ai was like well that's crazy like why would you ever want to cheat on your paper like that's not going to help you in your career and i was like wait a second (laughs) um that's you're making the premise that all human beings are good which i would like to believe but you don't have to go very far to see that's not the case. And um, we may all be good. We may trend good, but we're also, we, we're, we're traditionally, we like the easy path. And AI will provide the easy path. And then what's going to, what's going to keep it, you know, the what's going to push the journalist to go tell a story of, of the Ukraine-Russia war firsthand to see what's really happening there? Um if the images can be made and with a swipe of your finger on your laptop, your phone. And that concerns me. And I think, um, obviously we don't need to be flying all over the world and parachuting in and other cultures rapidly to tell stories without research and for climate reasons and a lot, but it's still, we, we need to connect to the world and, and find ways to, to trust the stories that we've, that we're hearing from. And um, I think photography is on a little bit of thin ice with that right now. And we need to be mindful about it. At least that's my, my take. Well, one uh, thing that your photography does and a lot of photographers like yourself, I feel like your works equal part poetry, travel and activism. And it's hard to create that through, you know, artificial intelligence. And I'm just curious with, was that something that was inherent in you, the activism, or was that something that evolved from what you were seeing in the world? 
it's, yeah, it's funny. People often want to call me an activist, and I have nothing wrong with that. Um, I, I guess I'm trying to activate people to pay attention. But really, I'm just telling stories that I'm seeing that are not getting covered as much. I'm telling stories of water shortage and drought or um, wild areas that are losing their wildness or wildlife that is, you know, getting more challenged or cultures. These are just, I'm just telling the stories that I find interesting and are in front of all of us. It's just what we choose to watch. And an example is I spent, I've spent now a decade plus documenting the Colorado river, which is a river in the Southwest. It's been in the headlines, uh, more than it has in the past because it's getting lower and lower and it supplies a lot of drinking water to 40 million Americans and goes through seven states, two countries. Um, and we, it's been on a slow collision train wreck for a long time and it's been very hard to get people to pay attention to it and tell that story. And, and yet, you know, whoever the latest pop star is, what they had for breakfast is far more interesting on the media front than where our water comes from. And that, so if I'm an activist about something like fresh water, that that's great if I need to be called an activist, but I see it more as I'm just telling the story that I think is more important. And um, maybe it's not as sexy, but should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell, tell us more about uh, the Colorado River, because we live here uh, at the end of a river called the Fraser River that kind of feeds into the Pacific Ocean, basically. So, I mean, rivers are kind of the arteries of, of this planet in a way. So can you kind of, I think what's happening at the Colorado, Colorado River has, has importance on a global scale because it's happening everywhere. Um, can you kind of share what you've witnessed at the Colorado River? Yeah, so uh, I think you're spot on. Um, I think, so what's happening with the Colorado River is it it starts at the, the mountains, um, much like the mountains in British Columbia, um, the, um, the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and Wyoming and New Mexico, and it all that snow melt flows, most of it flows into the western side, um, western side of the Continental Divide. And um, much of that gets actually diverted underneath the Continental Divide to cities like Denver. Um, but because we've learned to engineer this system so well, we've built dams like um, Hoover Dam that's created Lake Mead, which is the largest reservoir in the United States. Um, upstream from there is Glen Canyon Dam, which creates the second largest reservoir, Lake Powell. We basically tried to green the desert and we've asked too much of this river. And the simple lesson, the simple takeaway is that you, when you ask too much, it uh, there's no like giant reckoning other than it just disappears and we're dealing with it, the disappearance right now. We've, we stored a lot of water in the reservoirs and now we've had our, a lot of drought, basically two decades of drought and, um, snowpack is unpredictable. Even when we get a lot of snow, the runoff is less because of hotter, drier conditions due to climate change. And so now this river that flowed to the sea for 6 million years does not reach the ocean. I grew up with the belief that rivers flowed to the sea and that was just sort of how a natural system works. Um, it used to support the largest desert estuary in North America. Um, that estuary is basically all but gone. There's 5% of it left from some wastewater that gets diverted 
that, and that water is too salty to even put on crops. And uh, it supplies not only half of the drinking water for cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas and Denver and Los Angeles, but it also produces over 90% of the salad bowl, the lettuce and carrots um, for the entire United States. So those that don't even know what the river is or have never heard of it are actually eating the river, um, provided they're eating their, their healthy greens. Um, <laughs> uh, and so we're basically at a system where we're playing catch up and water managers are trying to figure out how to address this. We've, basically erased any water surplus we had in the reservoirs. They're all down to a quarter percent. And we have to figure out a way to cut this, our usage of this river by about 30%. And it's becoming very difficult. The, the old saying is that uh, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. That's been going on for a long time and it's heating up now. And any solution we come forward with is supposed to fix the issue for the next five years and they keep doing that every two years because the the rate of change is so exponential and so i think it is very symbolic of fresh water and climate change and everything that comes with it um energy economy uh, national security even um connected to energy systems um, so it's really the front lines of climate change and it's playing out in my backyard. And so I'm, that's why I'm working on it. I'm doing a new book on it and doing a film on it. Um, that actually involves my father who's turns 85 next week. He's still, um, healthy and moving around and he encouraged me to document what we kind of my backyard, so to speak. And um, he's a pilot, so we did a lot of it with a small single engineer plane called a Super Cub. I think there's some up in your part of the world, bush, kind of a bush plane. Uh, and so it'll be kind of a story of a father-son relationship around a river. And his, his health a little bit mirrors the health of the river as he's aging. The river is aging and dwindling as well. And um, so it's... It's a, it's amazes me that that, that story, which seems so obvious to me, that maybe makes me become called an activist, but it's, uh, it's now just becoming kind of more prominent because we're so much closer to the edge of the precipice, so to speak, the crisis level. Well, I think it's so important because here in, in Canada, I'm sure in the States as well, I think we can other climate change we talk about what's happening in the amazon we talk about what's happening you know flooding in in you know haiti or all these other countries that are that seem so distant from us but here in in bc we're cutting down the old growth there in colorado you know a river that supplies life for a good amount of america is is literally dying so it's like these things are happening here <laughs> and Without work like yours, we don't realize the importance of it, you know. Um, we don't realize the urgency of, of of how fast this world is changing and how, I mean, not to to use the word activist, but we all have to be active in being part of a regenerative future, you know. And if, we, if we're not aware, if we don't see these things, if, if the visuals aren't apparent to us, then we just go about our days thinking these problems exist elsewhere, you know? 
Yeah, I, I agree. I I think it's more important than ever. We need an we need an army of visual storytellers. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think we need storytellers that are you know willing to be. I mean, I don't I don't ever claim to have the answers or to be the expert. I just I'm just I'm just a witness, and I'm just trying to show what I've seen and what I'm learning. And um, you know, the internet can can fill us with, you know, experts, this and that, and, and be a little bit misleading sometimes. So I think we need, um, humble storytellers that use visual media as well. And, and are, are, are going to these places to be witnesses of whether it is old growth forest or loss of habitat for species that are all, it's all connected to this system. And, uh, hopefully remind us that we're, we're part of this place. We're not, we're not the master of it. Yeah, we, it's a lesson I think we need to, we need to learn and, you know, we would do well to pay attention, you know, to, I think like our, our indigenous sisters and brothers and the people whose land this is that we're on. And, and I know same goes in, certainly in, in Colorado and the regions in which that river runs through is like, nobody would have sensed ownership of place or water or anything. It would have been that we, we, it's a reciprocal relationship. We belong to this place. It does not belong to us. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's part of the story that needs to be to shared and, and told. And, you know, we need to accept that truth and start to live that way. Cause we think, Oh, we, you know, we talk about habitat and it, you know, um, f- drinking water and food and life itself. And somehow it's like not important enough. And yet the entire economy and everything that makes life function, you know, throughout certainly Colorado and, and some of the other states, Arizona, that it runs through is in the balance with the health of this river. And so you can't escape the the effects of, of an unhealthy waterway and that it's more than just, oh, there might not be enough in the tap when we turn it on, but it's the, the implications are, are so far reaching. Yeah. <clears throat> There's a good quote that uh, Ben Franklin said, um, early president of the United States, uh, uh, who famously, you know, helped discover, I guess, I'll probably get this wrong, don't quote me, but, with, you know, lightning with the kite. Um, but he said, uh, loosely, he said, uh, we, we learn the, the value of water when the well runs dry. And the well is running dry in many parts of the world. So it's, uh, <clears throat> I think it's... Um, yeah, it's good to tell these stories. At the same time, it's, you know, I I also try to not be too heavy-handed about it, not um, not lecture too hard. I like, if I do talks, I try to just, as they say in filmmaking, um, show, don't tell. And so try to do that. But back to your point about, you know, our can you know, respecting the uh, natural world. I have a friend, um, Len Nessifer, who's... Um, who's Navajo and he grew up in the Navajo nation. And um, he talks about this world called Ka and I probably mispronounced it, but it's a Navajo word. I believe it's spelled K-A-A. And um, you pronounce it with kind of a, uh, what I can't explain very well, but it, I'm not doing it. I'm not giving proper justice to the Navajo language, but it basically means that you, you treat nature as if it's your family. Um, and so the natural systems are like your auntie or your uncle. And I, I really appreciate that. And that, that whole kind of native perspective on, 
our relationship with the earth is that we're here to learn from it versus us like beating it in the course that we want and it's been the you know that's been the last 150 years of of the modern world of course and maybe we're gonna get a big spoonful of humility as we start to see these systems um fail in in light of in face of our hubris and trying to change it and what's sad is is to me is that there will be water in places um you know the Climate change is going to have huge reaching effects on so many, um, many of them um, impoverished communities. Um, and but also what's sad to me is that it's, um, you know, humanity will probably survive on a certain level and water will run uphill to money as it always has, really. But there are so many species that we're losing, too. And um, the, the next, you know, if I had children would they be able to see some of the the species I've seen in this planet? And they very most likely will not. And I, I just find that tragic. And uh, yes, I know that there's pop stars that have certain cereals that are really, really important, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about this unique frog that lives only in this part of the Colorado River? We need we need to know about that. Because well, yeah, that about frog that is cereal. frog that might help this one species of, of plant that actually helps, you know, you have an avocado in your salad. I mean, it's all there it's all woven together in certain ways and we just sometimes neglect to acknowledge that. Yeah, there's there's this um book that I love. It's called The Once and Future World. Have you read that one by chance? I haven't. Okay, I'll send you a copy. I'll get your address later. But he talks about, um, in terms of climate, we have like um, cultural and um, climate amnesia. Like we don't know, our children don't know what we knew, saw to be true when we were kids. And likewise, we don't know what our grandparents saw to be true. Like, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. 150 years ago, there was... 95% 95% more wildlife in this planet and we won't we don't know that history to be true because we never saw it so our our goal now is to to help not get in the way and help allow the world to regenerate so that this 5% doesn't become you know 1% in our lifetime yeah it's a big big lift <laughs> I know I know I know um not not to get too on on the the side of of what's going wrong with the planet i think a great part of your work is it celebrates uh the joys of so many communities and cultures around around this planet that we share and one thing that um you've celebrated is is silence and i wanted to kind of touch on that uh while while we're sharing this conversation um dean do you want to share this quote by by pico Iyer? Yeah, sure. So yeah, it's one of the things we love is like this visual storyteller, you know, photo, photographs and, and videography and yet silence, this audio kind of element or lack of it is is one of the things that has really piqued your curiosity and been central to your work. And we love that. So here's here's the quote. So it is that we might almost say that silence is the tribute we pay to holiness. We slip off our words when we enter a sacred space, just as we slip off shoes. A moment of silence is the highest honor we can pay someone. It is the point at which the mind stops and something else takes over. 
Words run out when feelings rush in. A vow of silence is for holy men the highest devotional act. We hold our breath. We hold our words. We suspend our chattering selves and let ourselves fall silent and fall into the highest place of all. That's Pico Iyer? Yeah. That's beautiful. Isn't that great? That's awesome. So how, yeah. So how, how does someone who, who is, you know, this beautiful storyteller through image, how do you start to pay attention to sound and, and the lack thereof in some places or the natural sounds that emerge as we're away from, you know, as we've kind of already alluded to in this conversation, the noise of our modern world? How did you become so, you know, curious and and lit up by this, this practice or this, this pursuit of silence? Yeah, it seems it seems totally ironic. Um, <laughs> the guy, the guy with the cameras, um, trying to, to tell a visual story about natural sounds and empty or lack of sound or the void of sound. Um, I think uh, I first I did a project a few years ago. And um, which was an expedition style project where I walked the entire length of the Grand Canyon, some 750, 800 very thirsty, prickly, scratchy, dusty miles. Um, uh, And it was a project to highlight um, development pressures um, in Grand Canyon National Park, which is um, one of our most iconic national parks in the United States, perhaps the world. And um, on that project, I, I often talk about three things I learned about the, the power of the night sky, which so many people don't have the luxury to see. Um, the, um, of course, water, I had to find water every day that was always forefront of my mind and very challenging. And there's a lot of water contamination issues in and around the Grand Canyon, actually, which is where the Grand part of the Colorado River story as well. Uh, another one was the the kind of the no, um, lesson was learning from the native um, tribal communities that live around the Grand Canyon. There are eleven of them, and they have um, um, voices on water and land and and so much more that have been neglected, and how their voice needs to be brought back to the table. And they don't all agree, and and nor should they, um, but they just need to be part of the system. And and realizing that their voice is very powerful and prominent and still there today um whether we think that it's was wiped away in our our bloodied history um there is still a big presence but the third lesson which really took me by surprise was um how profoundly quiet that place was Uh, wasn't always there's places where development and helicopter traffic air tourism has made it very noisy but much of that walk i was just I would sit in these moments of of such profound, deep, liquid silence that I could hear my my own pulse in my ears. And my microphones on my camera, my video camera would often buzz, which I later learned was because they were calibrated to a noisier silence. Um, so quiet that I my alarm clock consistently became the that subtle sound of bat wings wisping over me at the pre like pre-dawn light when the mosquitoes were sort of sensing the temperature change and swarming over me. 
um, so quiet that I would hear the bleat of a sheep um, in the distance. And I think it was right next to me, like up ahead and, you know, the rock layers, because we were often far from the river sometimes. It's 6,000 feet deep, that canyon, so, and it's very cliffy by the river. So we were often at 3,000 feet above it. But I'd hear a sheep and be like, wow, just around on the corner. And I'd look and look and look, keep hiking, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'd hear it again and be like, where is this sheep? It sounds like it's like in my back pocket. And then finally, after searching for a while, I realized it's on the other side of the river on the cross, the canyon. And the sound that the base, you know, the foundation of silence was so deep and profound that I was able to hear it. And so that planted the seed and then COVID hit and uh, the world shut down. It sucked for human beings and so much, but it was a, it was a windfall for nature. Um, and, um, you know, we all locked into our homes and I fought, you know, my industry, my world of going out and exploring stopped and dried up and it became very challenging, very, very depressed, um, drank too much, you know, the many, the usual stuff that many of us dealt with. And, uh, and I really started thinking about this concept of silence from the Grand Canyon and then started learning that during lockdown, it was the greatest period of quietude in, in recorded history. Seismologists in London were picking up activity. Typically, in an average bustly planet, the seismologists would pick up activity in, in London, not far away from London, maybe within England. During lockdown, they were picking up seismic activity on the other side of the planet. Um, and in addition, wildlife was starting to have behavior that was unique. And a lot of the, the uh, marine um, scientists were talking about whale behavior and orcas not talking louder, but talking in ways they had not heard. Chatting is like they had left the very noisy cocktail party and suddenly were able to have conversations with each other again. And so I actually went and did a story um, where I swam with the orca um, up in northern Norway uh, with special permission um, and uh, to listen to them and see them and was had a very, you know, very lucky to get into a, a moment with them. It was polar night, so there was hardly any light. The sun wasn't really coming up, and but I was able to have a, um, a few moments in the very cold 38 degree Fahrenheit water, whatever that is, four degrees, three degrees Celsius, two degrees Celsius. And um, uh, a, a male swam right up next to me and pinged me with sonar, and which is quiet, but it basically like thumped my chest, like nearly out of my, my mouth. And it was, it was one of the most spiritual moments of like connectivity with another sentient being on this planet that I will never forget. And it, it just re made me think like there was a whole other language going on on this planet, which we have learned to ignore and forget, even though we have thousands of years of using our hearing for survival, like so many other species, we've evolved past it um, with some of our technological advances. But I think those two kind of led me on this kind of I don't know, journey into doing this book, which explores all seven continents. I've been very privileged to work on all seven continents. Um, yes, I'm aware I have a terrible carbon footprint. I'm trying to improve that. That's why I go on walking assignments now. <laughs> um, that one was a good carbon footprint assignment, um, <laughs> the Grand Canyon. Um, but uh, 
it made me reflect on a lot of the stories I've done and how I've, it, this is really been a recurring theme with many of my stories. And, um, uh, I remember I did a project on, on the flanks of Mount Everest documenting the Sherpa and one of the Sherpa, I was, um, nearly caught in an avalanche and the route I was on that this guy was responsible for building was positioned in such a way that it protected us from this giant serac that fell off a cliff face above us at, at we were at 22,000, 21,000 feet in the Kumbu icefall on the south side of the glacier. And I didn't know that, I didn't see the crevasses above us, but this guy had, had paid very close attention to it. And because of his positioning and his mindfulness in building this route up through the Kumbu icefall, um, I asked him, like, how did you figure that out? And I remember very distinctly in his broken English, he told me that he, I was like, how do you see these roots? How do, how do you, where to go? And he's like, I don't see anything. I listen. So he would tap the ice and he could, he, he there was a language of the ice through the tones that they would echo back when he'd tap it. And those are the ways that he knew where it was safe and more secure and solid. And it, I guess it correlated with where those crevasses were to a degree. And I'm speaking on this podcast still today because of his genius <laughs> of his amazing listening skills to nature. So I say in the book, you know, nature has a lot to say if we listen and um, it's accompanied with the images of the places I was in at the time. Um, and some are compilations to show kind of the noisy elements of the planet, our impact, um, some merge photos, um, but others are just um, very quiet, meditative imagery. And then I, I spent a lot of time, I think I wrote some 30,000 words for the book about some of these experiences. And um, yeah, it was fun. It was, um, it's again, back to storytelling. It's, it's fun to find ways to tell new stories in a different way. And um, I'm using the, the tools of the eye to tell the the story of the ear. Yeah. Yeah. It's great too. I, I just, just like a, a, a plug for you, like um, your Instagram um, page has tons of great reels and there's a few in particular that are really, really stunning, not only for their imagery, but for the, the sound choices you've made. One in particular that I think really speaks to my, like Canadian heart is I think it was you and your brother out ice skating and just like this on this huge frozen lake uh, and you like just if you know you know like the sound of skates on ice outdoors is just something so so beautiful and there's another one um that is like the mix as you were just speaking of kind of like the mix of of the modern soundscape that we have the busyness the noise and and these really almost intimate sounds and it's one with uh that you were shooting elephants film, filming elephants and um it starts out with the helicopter sound and it's just like chuck, 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 like the rotor of the helicopter and then the next one is like this close-up shot of the elephant's trunk and it's just like breathing and kind of snoring because it'd been it was being relocated so it had been tranquilized and it was this big you can read about it on the caption but it was such a awesome juxtaposition of human noise and sound and then these beautiful sounds of these giant beasts just like sleeping and moving and it was it's it's something to behold because you see it 
and then you hear it and it really drives home that point. So anyone listening, I would encourage them to go and, and watch some of those and maybe pop the headphones in and experience it. But yeah, well, that's cool. Well, it, um, I will soon release, um, I just had a talk. Um, well, first the sound of skates on black ice is, is church for me. So, and, and, <laughs> uh, I mean, nature is my religion. Um, but that is a, that is a high level of, 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 I don't know, that's a sermon of, of the highest form. And it's really hard to describe until you've, until you've witnessed, felt it or heard it. And it's, there's this undertone of like the ice moaning and kind of like doing the lightsaber thing, Star Wars sounds that you did. I never hear any else anywhere else on the planet. And of course it's it's all kind of layered on this fact that if you're on thin ice making that sound you might break through so <laughs> um and now i lost my train of thought where where was where you were talking <laughs> about a story you were going to oh the uh, um yeah i did a talk about this book and so i would say that um you know the one thing that sticks with me the most you know i have the images always to look back on and reflect on but it's that soundscape that kind of lingers in my head and and in my ears and my brain and those are what i carry back with me and so i would show an image and and then i would keep the still image up but then i would play the audio file that i would either have because i'd done some video or i could find it later so you'd see the picture of jungle and then you'd i would play the soundscape of the amazonian jungle and it really it was an experiment and people that have heard it and we're in the audience it really like hit a chord and it was it was cool so it's um it's a way to just again play and you know experiment and try to tell stories in, in new ways so can you hear your photographs when you when you look at them can you hear that experience still um i can uh a little bit occasionally yeah for sure i mean it i wish i could hear them better <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and i can definitely i mean i know certain places in the grand canyon where i took it and i was hearing my pulse in my ears which sounds crazy but i it, it's until you experience deep profound silence which in today's world it's hard to find um i'll add another interesting factoid on that is that uh, i met a researcher wonderful guy named gordon hempton who lived in the state of washington and in the 80s he studied a um, soundscapes and he um he found i think it was like something like i don't know 25 or 30 places that he um could find natural sound so silence we're really talking about it for this book is natural sound which can be you know grand canyon crazy quiet or crazy loud if you're in like a penguin colony and they're all squeaking and quacking because they actually don't identify themselves through, through sight they do it through sound they're young and they're mates so they like to squawk and they squawk loud. Um, so you can be in a really noisy silence. It's really magically beautiful. Um, so it's, it's a silence that's defined by the void of the lack of mechanical human sound, um, just to be clear. But this guy, Gordon Hempton, he discovered that there was 25 or 30 places in the state of Washington in the 80s where he could have natural sound uninterrupted for 15 minutes. And he went back in the early 2000s and he said that um, none of those places had longer than five minutes. And that's because we have more jets, we have more roads. And that's um, basically happened all over the planet. 
And there's another guy named Bernie Strauss who used to go out and make natural recordings for, for museums or for Hollywood. And um, he said it used to take him 10 hours of getting audio recordings to get one hour of uninterrupted, like clean, natural sounds, whether he was doing frog croaking or, or I think he even did sea anemones underwater. Um, what's it sound like to be inside like a, an old log? Um, so it would take him 10 hours to like collect that data to get one clean hour of natural sound. He says to today's world, it would take a thousand hours to get one hour. And most of the places that he's recorded in, in the past are gone. You, it's just, there's no natural sound left. I think we've even lost our like comfort in being in silence. Like we fill the void, uh, you know, we've got our AirPods on or like, you know, I see people riding their bikes on the seawall here in Vancouver and they've got like, like, uh, speakers out of their backpack. Like it's, it's, there's almost like a fear of silence because it, it welcomes, you know, possibility or, or welcome self yeah, it- development, you know? It's like we've become too insecure to sit and ponder. And um, and I was just up in Vancouver. We were supposed to do this back when I came up there, but I, I got to ride the seawall. And I will say that you Vancouverites or whatever the right term is are a hardy bunch because it was really cold and everyone was out riding their bikes around the seawall. And I, I thankfully did not see or hear anybody with the boombox game going, but that is a thing everywhere and it drives me a little crazy. It's like... We all like music. I get it. But I don't necessarily mean that you need to hear my music in the wilderness. Yeah, it was a it was a sad day. I was on one of our local hiking trails here and there was a there was a sign put up by like the GVRD, the Greater Vancouver Regional District, saying like no electronic music like speaker like a picture of like no speakers or whatever and i'm like how like why do we need a sign for this on a trail in the forest like you know we all know there's those people that bring their little you know bluetooth speaker as they go hiking up and i'm like no leave it in your car i, I know i yeah i i sound like the old old curmudgeon guy but like <laughs> no you're not <laughs> yeah there's a time and a place for music always 100 percent. but like in the, totally. in the forest on a, on a trail is not the place yeah nature's got some pretty good pretty good um playlists if you just give it a chance well well pete just being being mindful of your time um if if you've got time for one short story um we'd love to kind of take things out with uh we love kind of like you know when you travel and you get around uh, at a table with some beers at a hostel or, or, you know, you're somewhere in the middle of the world and you get around with a bunch of strangers and you get, you just share your travel stories, things that will light people up. I wonder if you would entertain us for a couple of minutes with, with a travel story of your own that kind of stands out, whether it's from a photograph or something that's not in one of your books that, um, you know, can fancy our own imaginations as we kind of drift off from this conversation. Um, let me think about it. Give me a second. Um, we'll take a deep breath silence here. (laughs) Um, yeah, there's, there's a few, I mean, what do you prefer? Do you want a wildlife story or a a human story? I've got a good, a good human story. Uh, all right. Um, I, I could, it has some animals involved in it. Um, I'll add one more line I, I like that I've um, just to kind of bookend the Pico Dyer quote is that 
silence is revered by all religions. Um, I think even those like nature lovers like myself. So, um, okay. So the story, um, which I think is important today, because obviously we live in what's often sounds like crazy times. We have conflict and and um, divergent views and crazy divisive politics, etc. And so it sometimes feels like humanity is is um, eroding. I um, mean, because we have more souls on the planet, uh, more stresses on our natural systems. I don't know what it is, but this is a story that happened um, to me on an assignment I was doing for National Geographic, where I went and lived with the Bedouin. The Bedouin are a, a nomadic community, and and they were living in Jordan. So I got to go to Petra, which is um, became famous for an Indiana Jones film, and it's the Nabataean community that built these amazing city with these facades in the sandstone cliffs and they were remarkably talented at storing water and moving water without it you know gps technology but they would make these canals and store water in little cisterns underneath these amazing facades and i um i got to see it and um and then do a story on the the bedouin community which was relocated out of petra after it became a world heritage site and they were built housing which wasn't really what they loved it was like very soulless concrete housing and um i stayed with this guy um hamoudi um who was wonderful he spoke arabic and um, i spoke you know one word of arabic um (laughs) and he spoke about three words of english and he had a camel who could open up a bottle of um of uh, i think dr pepper was his choice Um, by himself he'd like use his lips and uh and pick off the bottle cap and so he was my really tough cool guide everyone revered him and respected him and knew that he was the dude and um, he took me around the desert and he introduced me to some of the um, Bedouin communities and we spent nights in, in goat hide tents with them all smoking cigarettes throughout the night talking about camel racing I understood zero but picked up a lot through hand gestures and it was really amazing for me because I hadn't spent much time in the Middle East. It's easy to get told, um, you know, what you're supposed to think of different religions and different people. And then this was 2000 um, and in February. And then um, I came home and um, I had moved to California at the time. And um, uh, September 11th of 2000 occurred. And I was actually supposed to go on assignment on September 12th back to Sudan. Um, so I was going back in for kind of in the mix and obviously nothing was happening and that got canceled. Um, so everyone's scrambling and wondering what to do. And there's this, you know, talk of war and everything. And then I get an email, I think it was like three days after um september 11th and everyone's just in this like disbelief of what's happened and it's uh, the actual humanity kind of meter was on the on the uptick at that point we were all kind of coming together as being like wow we really need to get to get um come together as a species a little bit and i got an email um that i didn't recognize and um it was it said in the subject um from friend Hamuda and I was like wow Hamuda like 
somehow figure out how to send me an email. So I open it up. He doesn't speak English. He doesn't type. He doesn't know how to do email. He lives with a camel in the desert. And he rode his camel from his village um, through the winding, um, like, canyons of Petra to the neighboring, like, near city. Found a college student, can talk to him, convinced him to get on email, had my email address written down somewhere. And he wrote me an email saying, Dear Peter, my dear friend, um, I hope that you and your family are okay. I just want you to know that this does not represent my religion. And he was Muslim. And the fact that, it almost makes me emotional thinking about it, the fact that he went to that effort to like make it clear that, that you know, across continents and seas, that we had a connection um, across religions, across beliefs, that was deeper. And um, that was a real lesson that... Um, there's great, great power in travel and in like finding humanity. And, um, and the story, I'm not even sure if the story ever even ran. I never even got great pictures. I actually got quite sick with meningitis. Um, but that experience and that connection and is just, um, will stick with me for a long time and be kind of a beacon of, um, how we're all more alike than we are apart. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's a great, that's a great story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's such an important reminder, right? When we're faced with challenges uh, of the environment and, you know, we can recognize the harm that humanity has inflicted upon the planet, upon each other, that at our core, I think we're all longing for those moments of connection and kinship, even when language and belief and culture and everything is is seems like a barrier there's more there's more of a bridge always between us and yeah that together we can we can do a lot a lot more uh for our planet yeah. and for each other i think that's what's so magical about um um i mean universal language can often be laughter or music um those two are you know healthy just don't play your music really loud in the wilderness <laughs> So good. Uh, Peter, before we let you go, we like to, we like to ask uh, all of our guests kind of one, one closing question, unless Zach, you have anything else? Um, we want to both, uh, just express our gratitude for you, not only for, um, your time today and the stories that you shared with us, but for the work that you do in the world. Um, your, your, uh, bringing people, bringing people's attention to these important issues, some might call it activism. Some might just call it you sharing your passions and being a witness. So thank you, thank you for doing that and for being with us today. We really, really appreciate you and, and everything you do um, in this world. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for uh, being a school teacher. That's, yeah. Um, I'll start somewhere in school. Is, teachers are great. So oh, appreciate that. Appreciate so we like, you. Yeah. We like, to, we like to ask each of our guests um, this closing question. Zach and I, started this podcast and we wanted to call it a little more good. Zach came up with a name. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, Oh yes, like that is, that's what we want to be about in the world. That's what we want to do and, and create. And, um, we just love to hear from, from each of our guests. Like, what is that little phrase a little more good? What does that mean to you when you hear it? Yeah. What's that mean to me? Uh, I think it could mean a lot of things, but, um, maybe just trying to make somebody else smile each day. That'd be a good place to start. Thank you. And that's, uh, I think that's a perfect ending because our smiles are often silent. 
but they mean so much. So I think that's a perfect uh, closing, Pete. Well, thank you to Echo Dean. Thank you so much for your time and for the work you create. Um, you know, we'll continue following and celebrating your journey and look forward to, uh, you know, all that you share, whether through uh, photography or through through silence, whatever whatever modality. Uh, we're excited to, to see where that takes you. Well, thank you, guys. And um, I guess you can put it in whatever the notes or something, but if people are interested in the silence book, there is... Yes, yes. A, a deluxe version that I that I just did that I sell on my website. Yeah. So just quickly as we as we close this up, tell us about the deluxe version. It's we've got the the normal version of seeing silence here, uh, but your deluxe version's kind of uh, just as it sounds. It's got I don't know if, if 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 what what will be seen here, but this it's big and it comes with a big case, and I I don't really like I'm not much of a PR person, but. Um, I am proud of this book. I'm more proud of the words than I am of the images, to be honest. But um, yeah, it's just something if you want a, a either a heavy doormat doorstop or something on the table. <laughs> um, and we've shipped quite a few to Canada. It seems like you guys up there have a have a reverence for the uh, the wild places. Yeah, we sure do. We sure do, and we. We hope through pictures like yours that we can continue to protect and preserve and regenerate these wild wild places. So keep keep doing what you're doing, Pete. We need uh, we need people like you. Well, appreciate what you guys are doing too. So thanks a bunch, and hopefully I get to meet you guys in person next time I'm up there. That'd be great. Hope so yes, okay, we'll let you go. Be well. All right, thanks Bye. guys. Take yeah. care. Bye. There it is. Seeing the lens, seeing the world through a lens. Uh, seeing the world in a unique way, seeing the world around us and from other places. This is the gift that Pete McBride brings to the world uh, that we can we can see corners of it, the Colorado River, the Grand Canyon, other spots that he's visited and documented and really find uh, a shared passion, a shared, a shared sense of belonging and humanity in those images. We all know that a picture is worth a thousand words, as that old adage goes. Um, and truly, it is. And also, it is worth uh, all of the inspiration to care for this place we get to call home. So that's amazing. So thank you to Pete for his work, for uh, all that he does in the world. Check him out. You can find him, petermcbride.com, uh, to go to his website and take a look at some of those documentaries. You can purchase books there and everything. It's a great great resource yes so if you want to check that out p-e-t-e-m-c-b-r-i-d-e dot com you can find his instagram his facebook his twitter links to all of his books and movies i encourage you to to read his books watch his movies uh they're a journey on their own uh if you've been at this far you know we're grateful for your time and energy we also want to give shout out and thanks to to one of our our, our sponsors and friends, uh, the good folks at Planted Expo. So Planted Expo is coming up. It's coming up hot. Whew, May 27th, 28th. There we go. That's the music. Love That's the Planted hype. Planted Expo. We're excited. It's going to be good. Uh, it's two days, Saturday, Sunday. You're going to want to be there. Grab your tickets. Go to plantedlife.com to get your tickets. Get them for the weekend. There's so much to see. There's so many samples to try. There's so many great vendors. There's so many great speakers. You can't possibly take it all in in one day. Get the two-day pass. Just take care of yourself. Splurge. 
and come see us on Saturday. We're going to be speaking on Saturday. Yes, Zach. yes, yes. Woo. It's going to be great. going to be great. So you're not going to want to miss Saturday. Great speakers, lots of friends. Dr. Matthew Negra, friend of the pod, will be there. Down Ireland. Aaron will be there. Lauren Toyota. It's going to be good. It's going to be great. Be good. So come down, hear us speak it's on the Saturday. We're going to be talking about all the things. We love it. We got, we're excited for what we're going to be sharing. But yeah, check out. Go to plantedlife.com to get your tickets. All right. Uh, lastly, you know, the best way for us to share and spread this pod is through reviews on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, we're so grateful for a five-star review, um, a follow, a like, a share with a friend, whatever it might be. Uh, the best way to, to spread the goodness is, is through those channels. So we're grateful for all of you making it this far, and we look forward to sharing more goodness with you. Same place, same time next week. All right. Stay good, y'all. Peace.